on the record on news talk a very good morning. It's Sunday the 6th of January. Happy Nulag Naman, Little Christmas, Women's Christmas, whatever you're having yourself. This is News Talks on the Record with me, Susan Kill, with you until 1 o'clock this afternoon. If you want to contact the programme, you can text us on 53106 at a cost of 30 cents. You'll also get me on Twitter at Susan Kill News. We've got a busy show on the way this Sunday. We'll take a start by looking at some of the Sunday newspapers along with our panel. I'm joined in studio by Larry Donnelly, attorney from Boston, now law lecturer in NUI Galway. <coughs> Excuse me, Sinead Ryan, Consumer and Personal Finance Columnist with Independent News and Media and Professor Gary Murphy, Political Scientist at DCU and author of Electoral Competition in Ireland since 1987. You're very welcome along. Thanks for joining me this morning. Good morning. We'll take a quick look at some of the headlines before we get started. Uh, Some of the papers this morning, the Sunday Independent leading with an exclusive this morning by Philip Ryan, Minister's Fast Track Driver Test for Voters. Uh, This is based on documents released under the Freedom of Information Act that show government ministers and opposition politicians are lobbying the Road Safety Authority to fast-track driving tests for learner drivers in their constituencies, uh, often getting a test date within a couple of weeks when others have to wait up to seven months. The Sunday Business Post leading this morning with work permits backlog hitting ability to attract foreign investment. Figures released to the paper show 2,520 work permit applications were on a list to be processed at the end of December, a figure that's been criticised by business groups who say the system needs to be modernised. The Sunday Times leading this morning with Harris pledges more GPs will offer abortions. Uh, Simon Harris saying that 200 doctors have now signed up to provide the service and next week more providers will come on board. Uh, The piece also says Minister Harris is working to introduce safe access zones at GP clinics after a number of protests as people have seen happened uh, during the week. The Sunday World this morning going with boyfriend on model murder charge. This relates to the murder of Jasmine McMonagall in Donegal on Friday. And finally the Irish uh, uh, Mail on Sunday going with the headline Varadkar losing faith in housing minister uh, the paper reporting that Minister Owen Murphy's handling of the housing crisis has led to a sharp deterioration in his relationship with the Taoiseach and just to mention all the UK papers actually leading with a lot of Brexit stories this morning and Theresa May has just been speaking uh, to Andrew Marr on the BBC we might take a little listen to what she had to say What is best for this country is to leave the European Union with a good deal the good deal is on the table. There are concerns about it. I'm continuing to listen to colleagues and we'll continue to talk to colleagues about this. And we're continuing to talk with the European Union about the further assurances that can give uh, members of Parliament the confidence of knowing that they can support this deal. And that's Theresa May speaking to Andrew Marr on the BBC this morning. We'll have lots more on that to come and in particular what she had to say about the backstop. We'll speak to our panel about that. But welcome along everyone. We might start uh, with talking about a little bit about Nulagnaman or a little Christmas. Happy Nulagnaman tonight to you, you very and to much. all of you. And also to uh, you, Susan. Unofficially the day that people take down the Christmas tree. That's where we're going to start. Are your decorations really? down or still up? Well, the breaking news is that <laughs> my Christmas tree um, is... is Technically, still up, but only because I have nobody in the house to take it out. Is for it me. as sad as the ones around Marconi House? It's completely tragic because all the decorations came down as soon as was practically possible. I can't bear 
um, tinsel and gugaws and baubles and the dust. My house now looks twice as big as it, <laughs> as it was before all this started. I'm not one for all, all of that, actually. It, it's de- I find it deeply depressing once St. Stephen's Day is over to even see it up. You just want so it gone. I just want it gone, yeah. yeah. So Gary, uh, I'm afraid now, a bit of a party God, cooper there. I know, a bit of a grinch. <laughs> I know. Yeah, yeah. Christmas has been so long, though. I mean, it seems to have gone on since Halloween. And, and I just, by the time then you get there, you're like, oh, for goodness sake, get rid of it. I, I would be with Sinead on this. I would take down the Christmas tree on the 29th of December. No, not at all. Uh, I took down my Christmas tree yesterday and I deposited it to the uh, recycling site in uh, in Blanchardstown, uh, which was very busy. Um, but yeah, I, I'm happy to leave mine up well until after New Year's Day. I think taking it down before uh, New Year's Eve, New Year's Day is a bit sad, really. And uh, <laughs> so, sorry about that uh, to both of you. But uh, I think this weekend is enough, certainly. I think so. it kind of depends maybe on whether you have the real tree or the artificial tree. I mentioned yeah. the trees in Marconi House here. They're all really, really sad looking and just yeah. need to be gone. If you have the re- if you have an artificial tree, it'll obviously go the distance. You might get till New Year's Day on it. Larry, what about you? Uh, tree I'm, down? Or? I'm, a, I'm a terrible Scrooge. I mean, I wouldn't even have a Christmas tree if I had my way. Uh, but my wife and my two sons are absolute Christmas fanatics. So oh, to your you question, fit in well there. To, to your question, still our real tree is still up with all the decorations, and they are all still there. You didn't win, Larry. Um, they will be they will be there for as long as they choose to keep them there because I do not participate in these rituals. So you don't you won't even help take it no. down. Absolutely and you not. don't have to put it up? No. <laughs> there you go. How do you, how do you get away with that, Larry? Here's a protest for you now. <laughs> Happy no looking at mine. That's right. My God. Uh, okay, another thing we want to talk about today is uh, there's lots of coverage in the papers, and Sinead might start with you on this as well, um, about the cost of luxuries and daily luxuries and how they're mm. going to soar in 2019, the price of a cup of coffee and all that sort of stuff. Um, anything stand out for you this morning? I think there's a lot of kind of false narrative around the VAT increase and um, of course the 1st of January was when we saw the yeah. the VAT uh, the VAT restoration is really what it is okay so VAT on, on consumables on the what I call the hotels and hairdressers sector mm-hmm. why the hairdressers were picked as anybody's guess um had been 13.5%, as we know, it was reduced to 9% to stimulate the industry, which it absolutely did, paid for by the theft from private pension funds of of the levy, as you'll recall. Private pensions, of course, not public. Uh, So so that time has passed and it was time to restore it. And uh, even though I work as a consumer advocate and I write about consumer matters, I think it's entirely right that it has been uh, restored back. It was always going to be restored. Of course, of course. And in fact, probably a year too late because Mm. the pension levy finished uh, two years ago. Uh, That said, you know, it's hard not to feel sorry for the small family-run cafes, businesses, especially those outside Dublin, uh, who will really feel this and have no option but to pass it on to their customers. Mm. Uh, I know one, one cafe owner told me that it's the equivalent for him of of, of an extra staff member, you know, having having to employ them because his VAT has gone up by, well, it's four and a half percent, but in real terms, of course, it's it's fifty uh, percent. Uh, that said, uh, there are mass. You cannot walk down a Dublin street at the moment without tripping over a crane, which is there to build a hotel, uh, and we have restaurants popping up. I, I think there are about, I was reading Katie McGuinness in, in my own paper yesterday and, and she was talking about all the new restaurants that were opening up in, in uh, the city uh, in 2019 and there were dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of them. Mm. Uh, so, you know, there's a little bit of a myth about uh, what 
what we like to spend our money on and what we gripe about spending our money on. Uh, so will the coffee industry be affected by our addiction to our non-soya fat latte? Absolutely not. <laughs> I mean, it is, we'll have it because it's there and we, we really want it. Does anybody know what they currently pay and will they notice the extra five or six cent on a cup of coffee? No, I mean, they just won't. Um, so I, I kind of feel a little bit of it is, is just a little bit of cant going on at the moment. Um, and, you know, the, the economy, which I know we'll talk about later, uh, the, all the evidence is there that people are willing and have money to spend notwithstanding the great tracks of people who have not seen mm, any uplift in mm. oppression and are still really, really um, very vulnerable. Uh, but when it comes to, to luxuries, I, I think it's a case of, look, we're Irish. Um, go, great. You know, we're back. Uh, and there's there's an element of that um, certainly uh, going on. So so I think people will give out about it and gripe about it, but it won't stop them buying. Yeah. Gary, what do you think? Anything stand out for you in the coverage on the economy or prices? A lot of it in the Sunday papers this morning. Well, I think there's an interesting piece by uh, by Dan O'Brien in the Indo uh, about the uh, showing that job numbers and tax revenues are what he calls supercharged by uh, foreign firms, and mm. I think that is true. The, you know, we are deeply reliant on uh, on foreign direct investment. Uh, I don't think there's any sign of foreign direct investment uh, taking a hike or anything. You know, we have a very stable uh, political system. We have a well-educated workforce. We're ideally placed on the uh, in the Atlantic, uh, into Europe. Uh, Brexit, of course, remains the great sort of imponderable and all these things. Uh, but to go back to Sinead's point, it, w- it would be unusual if those who were af- were affected by uh, this VAT increase weren't complaining. I think that's that's the point. Um, but uh, all the sort of macroeconomic indicators, and, and, you, and you just see it in terms of shopping before and even after Christmas uh, in the sales, uh, remain uh, strong. And so I would be uh, of the view that... Uh, that will probably continue into the uh, into the short to medium term. Into 2019. Larry, would you agree with that? Uh, yeah, broadly speaking, I would. Yeah, I mean, I think Dan O'Brien's piece is very interesting in the sense that he dismisses a lot of the talk from people who would say we're too reliant on uh, foreign direct investment. He says, look, there's no sign of any of these uh, firms leaving. And I think that's uh, especially the case because of a lot of the fear that people had around Donald Trump and some of his more protectionist uh, instincts. So uh, I think the picture is quite rosy that he painted, and I think that's probably true. Uh, as for the price increases, uh, if, as Sinead says, it's five or six cents here or there, uh, I don't think people will be angry about it. However, what I would watch for is some of the excesses of the Celtic Tiger, if, if those come back in the sense that if some decide, okay, uh, there's a VAT increase, et cetera, let's put a couple euro on top of different items here and there. I do think people will be very angry if that's the case, and I do expect that some merchants will try that. Uh, if it's uh, done on a, on a broad basis, uh, I think there'll be considerable anger about that. And of course, one wonders what that translates into. Uh, you know, for instance, we have local elections this year. The two are not really connected at all. But when people are angry, they ha- they're looking for an outlet to vent that anger. And it'd be interesting to see what might happen. There's a related story, actually, just on, on uh, Gary's point there about the um, foreign direct, the, the FDI, the yeah. multinationals. Uh, the front page of the Business Post has a story about the um, holdup in work permits being yes. issued to, to uh, foreigners coming in to, to work here. And there's a backlog of two and a half thousand 
applications, which is double what it was last year. Um, so that poses a real problem. One in 10 workers in Ireland work for a foreign multinational. So there is a massive reliance on it. Now, as Gary said, it's fine. It's stable at the moment. You know, we were talking outside about Trump's protectionist policies and whether they're going to translate mm. over here. And for the moment, it seems fine. But it absolutely skews your GDP no end to have um, so much reliance on it. Uh, and these, for the most part, we know, you know, are the Boston Scientifics, the Intels, they're high earning individuals. So that has a knock on with the with the rent thing. But I wonder, you know, why we have then such delay in work permits when we want these people mm. in, we want them to be able to spend here and be taxed here and have all that, that we can't join up yeah. um, the, the kind of administrative bits of the estate uh, of the state that would allow that happen quicker and faster. And it must be deeply frustrating. Yeah, see, yeah, we, like we, we live in a globalised world. I think that when we talk about foreign direct investment, I mean, the reason we have foreign direct investment is because these companies want to sell into uh, the global market, into you particularly. Um, and and the old days of sort of indigenous Irish industry driving the Irish economy, well, they never really existed in the first place uh, in the 30s to a small extent, I suppose. Uh, but but I, I, I think that's the key. We live in this massive globalised world. This is the problem in many ways with, with Brexit and with Trump, this sort of retrenchment to some idea of protectionism uh, to protect the, the indigenous uh, worker of both the United Kingdom and the United States, which never really existed, I think. Uh, and I think that's the point that really needs to go forward. We're, we're all kind of interconnected. Larry, let me bring you in there um, just in relation. There's a couple of other good pieces just to mention. Ian Guider is a good piece in the Sunday Business Post talking about the Irish economy could be worth up to 500 billion by 2030, um, according to some optimistic forecasting groups. But I guess you can't talk about anything these days without talking about it through the prism of Brexit and, 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 and what might happen when it comes to that. Yeah, uh, I suppose you're giving me the easy question here, Susan. Uh, we really don't know what's going to happen. I think that's the fundamental bottom line. Uh, I think it's good to know now, finally, that the government seems to be devising some sort of plan for a no-deal Brexit. Uh, but uh, the outcome, you know, either way, uh, is not going to be a good one for Ireland. And I think that's one of the things I think is missing in some of the coverage today in the papers is that, uh, yes, things are looking good at the moment, but we don't know what lies ahead. And one way or another, Brexit is going to have... Uh, a negative impact on this country uh, and how we adjust and how we pivot, given all of the ties that we have, economic and otherwise, with the United Kingdom, uh, that's a great question. I think people, we constantly have people talking and talking and writing and writing uh, about Brexit and what might happen, but it's all speculation because we just don't know where this road is going. Yeah, and as we said, there was a bit of a Christmas ceasefire um, over the last couple of weeks or a break from Brexit that I think a lot of people needed. Uh, but as I mentioned at the start there, Theresa May has been speaking to Andrew Marr on the BBC this morning, and we'll have a no- little listen to what else she had to say. What we have in the House of Commons is a Labour leadership and Labour Party that is playing politics with this, that is opposing any deal in order to create the most, the greatest chaos that they can. We've got people who are promoting a second referendum in order to stop Brexit. And we've got people Mm -hmm. who are, want to see their perfect Brexit. And I would say, don't let the search for the perfect become the enemy of the good. Because right. the danger just, there, the danger there is actually we end up with no Brexit at all. I've asked you, I think, three or four times whether you'll bring back this vote again and again and again, and you haven't answered me, which leads me to assume that you would bring it back no. again and again and again. Uh, Andrew, what I'm doing, you're saying what happens if, 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 if. Yes, if. yes. What I'm saying is let's actually, re- let's actually remove the first if 
and let's get this vote through the House of Commons. Well, that's what you like to do. Now, that's what I'm working oh, for. And I, that's well, what I'm working for with colleagues. And I'm listening and to colleagues and we'll be continuing to talk with colleagues over the coming days. And crucial to these conversations, I assume, is whether or not Britain gets its own independent exit mechanism from the backstop or else a time limit to the backstop. Is that the essence of what you're trying to get out of Brussels? The key concern that members of Parliament raised on the backstop was the concern that it could become permanent or it could become indefinite. Uh, and they need to know that it can be replaced if it's put into place. Now, we and the European Union are very clear, this has been reiterated, it was reiterated at that December Council, that this is not intended to be used in the first place, and if it is, it is only temporary. But it's that concern uh, that uh, maybe there is some way in which it could become indefinite. So ensuring that we actually get the future relationship in place to replace the backstop if it's used is a, a, a crucial element of this. We say, the European Union say, that's what we want to do. It's making sure that we uh, can give people the confidence that that will be delivered. Since we're talking about the backstop, there's all this ghastly jargon all around the place, but since we're talking about the backstop, what we also know is that the Irish government has said they will, under no circumstances, put up a border. We know the DUP and Northern Irish politicians won't put up a border. There is not going to be an Irish border, and therefore, why does there need to be a backstop? Well, first of all, the, uh, we're very clear that we will do everything, whatever the circumstances, everything in our power, not to have a hard border between Northern Ireland and Ireland. But what, what, but what you have to... Well, you say, well, it won't happen. Actually, no border, no, no border doesn't happen simply because people sit around saying, well, we won't have a border. Actually, but it only happens if people put it up, and nobody no, no, who could put no, it up will. But it's about more than that. It's about businesses knowing what they do. So if you're in a situation where you're operating different tariffs, how, how do businesses deal with that in terms of customs uh, and matters going across that border? So actually, as ever, this isn't just about aspiration. It's about practicality. And that's the point. It's about making sure that we can guarantee that there will be na no hard border. That's important to us. Northern Ireland is part of the United Kingdom. Sure. We owe it to the people of Northern Ireland. Gary Murphy, I might come to you um, on that uh, long interview with Andrew Marr and the BBC. Where will we start? <laughs> Where will we start? We're, we're not hearing really anything different no. to what we've been hearing in the couple of weeks in the run-up to taking that break for Christmas. Yeah, it's extraordinary. It, it, it's a classic political uh, opening gambit is to blame the opposition, which was our very first uh, point that we have a Labour Party playing politics, which uh, was quite ex quite extraordinary statement uh, because the Tories have been playing politics <laughs> in Europe ever since the uh, Britain entered with ourselves in, uh, in January 1973. I mean, I, I don't even know where to begin. It's uh, a slightly self-delusional. I, I nothing summed up the woes of the British with Brexit this week and the fiasco about the uh, the company getting the ships, which doesn't have any ships, uh, the contract <laughs> for, um, uh, for 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 emergency ferries and whatnot. Um, but uh, we're no further on than we were back at the beginning of December. There's The vote is supposed to happen. There's no guarantee it will happen. I think Theresa May will inevitably lose that vote. The Labour Party are not returning. And why would they be? Um, but the problem for the Labour Party, of course, is that it's led by a notorious Eurosceptic, a man who has campaigned against the European Union all his uh, adult life, who clearly uh, doesn't believe in it, and seems to think for in some... And there's a lot of talk about fantasy Brexiteers, but I mean, there's a fantasy Corbynist view of the world, which mm, yeah. is that somehow... Labour standards, social protection will all be better if uh, the EU was, or Britain was out of the EU, and that's just not the case. 
Sinead, anything stand out for you in the papers? There's a good bit on Brexit. I think people, it's a bit of a vacuum, yeah. as I say. There hasn't been anything happening. We don't really know what happened over Christmas. I presume Theresa May was hoping that all her ministers would go back and talk to their constituents and, you know, their constituents would stress to the ministers that they needed to get this deal through. It was better yeah. than, you know, a hard Brexit or crashing out without a deal. Um, what, anything stand out for you in the papers today? Good luck with that, Theresa. Um, <laughs> well, actually, one of the good things about the, the Sunday Times is that it's straddling both borders. So mm. half the half the content of the paper yeah. is are British mm. uh, commentators on this, which which is always interesting. Although they don't necessarily get the same content when it's printed. Um, Tim Shipman has a piece in the in the Times about uh, Theresa May now um, is being pressed to go to the European Court of Justice, uh, as we pointed out in the in the green room. No irony there to try and get a ruling that the backstop would be temporary or is temporary or cannot <coughs> not be temporary. Okay, of course that's not going to happen. Um, because the ECJ is going to send her off with a flea in her ear and tell her to go and, and sort things out. Um, but the, the narrative on the uh, on a, the chances of a hard Brexit seems to be hardening. Mm. There is a definite pulling in of, of voices. For instance, the Bank of England now has issued dire warnings of a decade of economic mm. gloom when this goes ahead. And they're not even talking about the hard Brexit. They're just talking about Brexit. Brexit yeah. um, now that, they had kind of remained stum up to now to some extent. They had um, uh, even gone so far as to increase interest rates, which is bizarre because, I mean, they're going to just collapse to negative, I I would suggest, definitely zero after all this pans out. You know, parity will probably be the norm between the euro and sterling and possibly even the dollar and sterling if, if, if it's really, really bad. So they are quite rightly, as far as the city is concerned, Giving, giving the correct information that this is a terrible idea. Uh, there are contingency documents, it seems, finally being drawn up uh, in Britain. Very late about, in the day, Oh, though. absolutely bizarre about what's going to happen to uh, the practical elements. As, as Theresa May was talking about there, about trade and freight and ferries and non-existent companies and how they're going to get through borders and all that. Uh, like, it's as if we're talking about something that's going to happen in the next in five years. five years. There's time. a very worrying line in, in that Tim Shipman piece, which is the Prime Minister is to take personal charge of a no-deal planning this week, chairing a new week. committee, <laughs> yeah, exactly, called EUXT, yeah. uh, which I found just the most extraordinary yeah. thing. I mean, the British clearly have had... Uh, I've done very little planning, uh, and uh, and to be fair to the Irish government, I think or, or, there's some stories today about uh, you know we're ramping up our planning. I think the Irish government has performed in many ways quite uh, admirably, but uh, we are quickly, in my view, looming towards a no deal Brexit. John Lee has a has a piece in the Mail actually today, um, reassuring readers uh, that Shane Ross is to give a comprehensive report on how freight and ferries are going to operate uh, to cabinet this week so I think we can all rest easy knowing that that's coming. (laughs) We'll definitely can uh, rest on our laurels now. Larry I'll bring you in there. Yeah one one interesting thing from the shipment piece and I'll be curious to see where this goes is that there are two groups evidently within parliament who are uh, working in a legislative fashion to do things uh, such as uh, stripping the treasury of no deal powers unless MPs vote for a deal uh, or explicitly go for a deal. Uh, another one uh, talking about not allowing the, the Chancellor to raise taxes uh, unless there is a deal. Uh, it'd be interesting to see if that legislative wrangling accomplishes anything. Um, the other two things I think that are important, we talk at a very high level about Brexit all the time. Uh, my real concern amidst all of this, amidst all the politicking and all the academic and other chatter, uh, are the people, for instance, who live 
around the border and all the things that must be going through their minds right now about their lives and about their livelihoods uh, in the event of a no-deal Brexit. Uh, and I really think we should have a lot of sympathy for those people because the situation they find themselves in uh, is an incredibly precarious one uh, on a number of different levels. So I think uh, beyond all the high-level talk, I think we need to focus on them. The, the last thing uh, I think, and it, this goes to something that Gary said, uh, sure, Jeremy Corbyn has been a lifelong Eurosceptic, but I think, and I actually hope uh, that the history books, when they're written around this, are extremely unkind to him because uh, I think his role in all of this has actually been quite disgraceful uh, when it comes to the future of his own country. Uh, and I think it's profoundly sad to see. Okay, Larry, Gary and Sinead, stay with us. We'll be back in just a moment. On the record. On News Talk. You're listening to On the Record here on News Talk with me, Susan Kill, with you until one o'clock this afternoon. My panel is with me, Larry Donnelly, Sinead Ryan, and Gary Ma- Murphy. Sinead just saying, Larry, Sh- Gary, and Sinead makes them sound like a band, so I've just <laughs> launched a new right. band. I'm the manager. Don't make us sing, please. <laughs> now, there's a good bit of coverage in the papers today. Um, Gary, I might come to you first on this. In relation to GP protests, um, in relation to abortion services, we did see this um, kind of midway through last week, uh, particularly in Galway. Um, there's yeah. front page story in the Sunday Times as well, uh, some comments from Simon Harris in relation to GPs and how many GPs are going to be on board to offer abortion. Yes, yeah, so there are 200 doctors have signed up to the service and uh, in inverted commas next week, the minister says we will see more providers uh, coming on uh, board. Uh, there's not a single GP in four counties, for yeah. instance, Leitrim, Carlow or Sligo has been uh, recruited and just 112 of the state's 3,000 GPs are taking referrals from the, the HSE helpline and uh, my options and there's been some controversy this week with uh, uh, I wouldn't quite call them fake helplines but yeah they are basically they yeah. probably yeah. are um, of people ringing a number and getting a, a very uh, fervent pro-life group uh, and peddling this falsehood about uh, abortion and breast cancer which is really shameful and uh, it's shame, and shame on them exactly um, so I mean it's a huge uh, change in our in our mm. in our politics and in our culture the move from uh, the Eighth Amendment, the constitutional law of this land from 1983, uh, to its removal uh, overwhelmingly by two thirds of the people in the referendum uh, last May. Um, there's an interesting piece by David Quinn, not surprisingly, saying that doctors are the last. Uh, Basically, the last, Line of defense, exactly yeah. the last refuge, uh, and I think you'll probably see more of them. Larry would be more familiar with me uh, th- than I am on this, but all across the United States since Roe versus Wade uh, came in in, uh, dec- in 1972, uh, there have been protests outside abortion clinics, and still are to this uh, to this day. And abortion has become more difficult to get, notwithstanding its constitutionality. I think. Uh, the law will need to settle down and clearly more doctors will need to be uh, recruited but there is some division within the uh, uh, within the, the gynecological profession and I think we'll have to watch that as the year goes on. Sinead, I might come to you on this. We saw, um, as I mentioned there, a protest take place um, outside of GP's clinic in uh, Galway and obviously it brought safe zones and, you know, that legislation back to the fore. We were talking about it a lot last week. Um Pickets or protests, I, you know, there has been some talk that picket isn't exactly the right terminology um, compared to a protest. But 
something will have to be done to try to, you know, deter people from taking part in that kind of activity outside GP clinics and also yes. to protect women who need those services. Yeah, and, and there's a distinction made. I saw Declan Ganley tweeting about this and saying, oh, you know, it was undemocratic to stop protests about protest. that. Yeah, but you see, nobody's trying to do that. What this is about, standing outside GP surgeries or clinics that are offering services that we voted for overwhelmingly mm. in a referendum is the very, you know, um, antithesis to democracy uh, that there is. I, I mean, these protests only serve to belittle, frighten and shame already vulnerable, scared women going into access perfectly legal services. Now, protesting is a democratic right, but the place you do that is outside the doll. You stand for election. You have public meetings. You do all the things that uh, the pro-choice um, groups have been doing for 35 years, uh, me included. That's how you change things. So if you're not happy with the result of a referendum, that's OK. We're good at changing referendums. We're good at voting again when we get things wrong. You know, that, so, so the, the anti-choice groups can start that process again if they wish, but they don't. you don't do it by targeting individual women um, who are uh, in desperate need of, of help and the services that we are now offering. And I think that's the distinction. And so having exclusion zones or safety zones so that women can privately, and remember, this is a deeply personal private matter. So to have them kind of jeered at and shouted at and, and talk to the way you've seen in, in, we see in America, for instance, in some places, um, I think that's disgraceful. That's not us. Uh, and I think that absolutely has to be stopped. And the legislation to do that should have been brought in already. Well, Simon Harris was busy, you know, bringing in all the yeah. other stuff. But that's Department <coughs> of Justice stuff. It needs to be done swiftly and immediately. Uh, there's there's, and there's nothing more private than the relationship between the doctor and uh, their client. Uh, and people could be accessing services for all sorts of... Yeah, well, sorts, that that this, smacks, access, yeah. this smacks of the, the kind mm. of homophobic outing in the 80s. Yeah. You know, there was the no suggestion in Galway that there was any jeering or anything like that and there was no images. Mm. This was text that was written, written on, well, you know, just the very the very fact. How does banners. how does a, a 18 or 19 year old girl who has been through some trauma already enough to need to seek mm. the service, you know, how intimidating is it even just to walk past even a silent protest Absolutely. With, with, with those sickening posters that they weren't up in Galway this week but we've we seen see them, them over the campaign. The hospitals during the campaign. Larry, um, the question for you I'd ask you is these um, exclusion zones or safe areas though is that enough? Like, will that work? Because, you know, GPs are in towns, they're on the side of a street. So if, as Sinead mentioned there, an 18 or a 19 year old is going into a GP to access a termination, they're not going to not see these people protesting, even if there is a safe access zone or even if there is, you know, an area that they can't be in. They'll be in the general vicinity. Yeah, I mean, look, it, it, it is inescapable. I mean, there are certainly radicals uh, on this issue who are going to protest. And, and let me let me come clean. I mean, I come from a very different place on this issue than Sinead. Uh, I voted no in the referendum. Um, but at that having been said, uh, I don't think this is uh, – uh, I, th I agree with everything that Sinead has said. I think this is wrong. Uh, I think it's disturbing. And also, I think it's very counterproductive for people who oppose abortion uh, to do things like this. I think that the, the doll and other places – are the 
appropriate uh, means of overturning this. What I'll say in terms of the the, pol- the politics of this, uh, a lot of people, I think, in the coverage over the new year, and I just wrote a piece on this uh, over the new year, were saying that uh, we can kind of draw a red line under the issue of abortion. We've dealt with it for 35 mm. years. It's now gone. It's off the agenda for forever. Uh, I think they're wrong. Uh, I don't think I don't recall any political mobilization or any demonstrations, for instance, after the same-sex marriage referendum. There was none of that. Yeah. You could effectively draw mm. a red line under it. Uh, I believe this issue is going to trundle on. Uh, and contrary to what most experts, probably Gary's going to disagree with me in a minute, uh, contrary to what most experts think, I actually think abortion is going to be a political issue, certainly in the next general election. Uh, and I think that reflects the experience of most Western democracies. Uh, I think Ireland would be quite unusual if it's not. And the reason I say that is because abortion is now squarely in the political sphere. It was a constitutional and judicial issue uh, for many decades. Now it's a political issue. Mm. Uh, And I think that these activists uh, on the anti-abortion or pro-life side, uh, I don't think it's going to go away for them. Uh, And I think you can look forward to a small but vocal portion of the electorate who are going to vote uh, on the abortion issue. Gary, bring you in on that. Well, yeah, I would disagree. Um, I mean, in 1983, abortion was a political issue before it became a constitutional issue. The reason we had the Eighth Amendment was because of overt pressure by various pro-life groups on both uh, Charles Hockey and Gareth Fitzgerald to insert a pro, so-called pro-life clause into the constitution. If you look at same-sex marriage, what happened there? I mean, that had no impact on the following general election. If you look at the Labour Party, would they always consider themselves, and I think rightly so, drivers of same-sex marriage and having a referendum, and were all but wiped out in the 2016 general election. And while this is on the other spectrum, I'm just not convinced that people go but, to the polls, hold on, I hope people go to the polls in general elections and vote on cultural issues. There's no evidence of that. And Ireland is unusual, certainly, uh, but there's, the evidence doesn't... But, I, I'm not convinced Pat or Tobin's party has any great long-term uh, future. Look what happened to Renewa, running explicitly on a kind of a pro-life, socially conservative agenda. I don't think they're going anywhere. The polls would, would back me up there. So, yeah, I would respectfully disagree with my, Larry, my colleague. Larry, come back in. If, if, if Gary is correct, and he may well be, I've been wrong many times before, if Gary is correct, then Ireland certainly will be absolutely unique uh, on, the, on this front, because abortion is a live political issue uh, across Western democracies. Uh, if it all of a sudden goes away, uh, and I, again, I completely agree, it's going to be a small portion of the electorate, but I, su- I, I suggest to you that that very small portion of the electorate is very dependable. They are people who will turn out uh, in elections and in close-running close constituencies, particularly in rural constituencies, they could tilt the balance in the next general election. There were election. similar arguments in 1995 after the divorce referendum. There were similar our arguments after same-sex marriage that there was this a... This is a very different no, issue, that, that, that there was 30% of the people who had no political party uh, to vote for and that never uh, came to fruition. So, I, I mean, there certainly is a chance and we'll see how Pallor Tobin's party gets on and I think that's going to run in this explicit 32-county uh, anti-abortion uh, element or agenda And uh, but I, I don't particularly see it at the moment. I think, I think, I think if there is going to be a political impact um, at the general election, it'll be within Fianna Fáil because their party called this wrong. And they, but their leader called it right. Yes, yeah. their leader called it right in the end, and he had a, a Damascene conversion well, after he came up much mature reflection. Her, he instance. absolutely did. Yes, and and he he gave it such great thought and careful. Um, uh, I think consideration. mental consideration that people really believed his his heartfelt position on the matter, uh, and that pertains. However, um, you know it has to be said that most of the rest of the party were out of step with their own electorate. Uh, so I don't know how that will translate. I think possibly 
Gary's point is is very well made that people we don't vote in a general election on these type of things. I think if the result had been any tighter, I mean you remember the divorce referendum was fifty one and a half and forty nine and a half. So maybe there was some scope for saying, well, it wouldn't yeah. take much to, to change. But this that was a pretty emphatic. This was win. emphatic, yeah. and and, um, and and remember the third time round, really on this issue that we had we had done this. So. I'm not sure there's anything to be gained. There are, you know, these few kind of right-wing pop-ups, but we don't have that huge difference between right and left-wing that they do have in a lot of other mm. countries and notably in, in the States uh, where, you know, you, you sometimes see, and Larry's obviously expert here, but you see that swing on like single-issue things like Roe v. Wade. Where do you stand? That's all that seems to matter, matter. Uh, you know, irrespective of, of all the other troubles that, that America has and people are, are prepared to swing one way or the other depending on that one issue. I'm not sure that I think we're much much more middle-of-the-road country in, in terms of that. So, you know... I, I, I agree, I agree absolutely with everything that Gary and Sinead has said. Uh, I would just suggest respectfully uh, that I think abortion is a different issue to all of the other cultural mm. issues. I think it's a very different. What's been of the fish. experience in America then, Larry? If you have that insight in terms of, you know, is there safe access zones, exclusion zones outside abortion clinics? And I do think there was a hope here that because we weren't going to have private abortion clinics, that we wouldn't see yeah. the type of thing that we saw in Galway. Because you know, if somebody's mm. going into a GP or going into a maternity hospital, it's very hard to ascertain what they're going in there. There's more and more signs. So, up, you know, exactly. you dilute the level of the pro- of the protesters of the protest, available. Exactly, but what is has been the experience in the states? Yeah, I mean, well, first let me just address the legality of it. I think in Ireland is a much better case, and, and as I said, I'm completely in favor of these exclusion zones. I don't think anybody uh, should be intimidated or harassed going in to see a doctor. Uh, I think in Ireland it's much more easy in terms of constitutionally uh, to do something to enact laws like that. In the U.S., it's a little bit different because of the First Amendment and because of the arguably radical, at least internationally speaking, the arguably radical protection given to speech of all different kinds. Mm. So it is a little bit more tricky when it comes to legislating around that. And there's been a lot of legislation, a lot of litigation uh, afterwards about those. But generally speaking, there is uh, there are protests outside abortion clinics in the United States. They go on uh, repeatedly. Uh, again, I think a lot of it is unfortunate, and I think it's disgusting, and I think it's deleterious, damaging to the pro-life cause. Uh, but they do happen, uh, and there are instances certainly around the U.S. of horrible things that do happen. Uh, we do see some retrenchment uh, around abortion laws in the United States. But it's a fraud issue, and it is. There are a lot of people in the United States, and again, I accept that Ireland is quite different. Mm. Uh, there, but Ireland, uh, but abortion it can, remains uh, a fraud issue politically in the United States. There are uh, a good number of single issue. Uh, voters in the United States, they tend to be anti-abortion. Uh, I, it, it's just, it's a, the key element, I suppose, of the so-called culture wars, uh, in the United States. And it's one of the reasons, for instance, that Donald Trump was able to win the presidency. Exactly. There are no Republican candidates would have any chance of getting elected over the course of the next decade or two if they weren't, uh, to repeal Roe versus Wade. And likewise, there's no Democratic candidate who could stand, Larry being a good Democrat, uh, but mm-hmm. uh, who, who could say that they would uh, they would want to get rid of Roe versus Wade. It is the most polarising cultural issue in the United States. I've never been convinced that the Supreme Court is 
wouldn't change its mind. I think it potentially could uh, still. And, and of course, moving more and more uh, rightwards, I think if Trump was able to nominate another uh, conservative justice, for instance, uh, there's long-term concerns about Ruth Bader Ginsburg's uh, health, in many ways the most liberal member on the court. Um, so that's certainly one to watch. And Larry is quite right. And, and we might be talking about Trump in 2020 uh, oh, before we finish. Not. But it's... Uh, <laughs> It is a polarising issue and it, it will remain, I think, polarising here in uh, in Ireland because there are, you know, the guts of a third of the people deeply dissatisfied with the uh, the result of the uh, the referendum vote last, uh, last May. OK, we will come on to talk about Trump and all things uh, happening stateside uh, in the next few minutes. But Larry, Gary and Sinead are staying with me. We'll be back in a moment. <laughs> on the record. On News Talk. Now you're listening to On The Record with me, Susan Kyo, with you until one o'clock and my panel, Larry, Gary and Sinead are still with me. Uh, We are going to find a jingle before the end of the show. Sinead, I want to come to you on this. There's a lot uh, in the papers today about pay and uh, the Finance Minister, Pascal Donoghue, has been speaking to the Sunday Business Post Mm. today. They're on a collision course in terms of health with nurses. Uh, He's talking about striking and how the year of Brexit is not the year to strike. What is uh, Minister Donoghue saying in this piece? Yes, Pascal Donoghue was given some um, amount of column inches in the Business Post to head the revolting nurses off at the pass, as it were. Uh, So nurses are looking for a pay rise, and I think uh, there is probably nobody sitting here or listening to us that wouldn't say they are probably worth it. Uh, That's it. Uh, Overall public pay, of course, is 19, just over 19 billion euros. Mm. Uh, That's a third of all of the spend uh, in this country on everything. So uh, it's not about the nurses. This is about the public pay claims that would follow if, after if the, nurses. the nurses. So yeah. they get it, everyone else exactly. will want it. And we're it. in a pay, pay stability arrangement at the moment until 2020. So, you know, Pascal Donoghue is coming out kind of saying, well, well, now is not the time and we have an arrangement in place and, and all that. Uh, the nurses, uh, he cla- he says, uh, have a very good starting salary of 31,000, rising to 36,000 a year with... Um, uh, allowances and and all the other bits and bobs that get added in. Uh, he said this is attracting nurses. Uh, they they have gone up by fourteen uh, percent. I I think it, it's a little disingenuous, of course, because when he says it's gone up by fourteen percent, a lot of those are just replacing, yeah. mm. <laughs> retiring or leaving nurses that are, that are going back. And of course, there are nurses who would like to come home, and there are others who would like to leave for all kinds of reasons that have nothing to do with uh, with pay. Uh, I, I think. Really, what needs to be addressed, and, and you know, this I'm certainly not the first to say this, is the overall dysfunctional way that the HSE is run, uh, and indeed the Department of Health, and and where that comes in. There's calls now for that to be remerged. Uh, Tony O'Brien is in the in the paper today. Maybe he wasn't around the first time when it was merged, um, getting getting his own uh, spoke in there. Uh, so Pascal Dunn, who's tr- trying to kind of calm the waters and say, look. You know, do you think he'll ignite the fire? Though I mean, he's saying that the the gripes are unfounded. Do you think it's just going to you know make them more I, angry? I d- yeah, well, he, possibly it will. Um, it really depends on where the nurses go with this now. If they are hell bent on striking mm. and going there, they'll have a lot of public sympathy to begin with, and then they won't. Mm. Uh, and I think that's the chance that he's taking here. He's trying to kind of let the public know, I'm not going to not do this. I'm just going to not give it to them yet. Yeah. And I think that was yeah. the purpose of the piece today. It's to say they are probably worth a bit more cash, but let's wait till 2020. Gary, yeah, what do you make of it? Yeah, he makes a good point. Raising expectations might be a byproduct of a growing economy, but we must simply accent it. There are two problems. One is, of course, is that the government uh, did a deal with the guards uh, a couple of years mm. ago where they basically out, uh, moved beyond the, 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 the then pay structures. Uh, and secondly, uh, it's easier said than done to say that in a rising economy, which we discussed earlier, that people... 
uh, should uh, stay still. 30,000 doesn't seem an awful lot to me, uh, particularly if one lives in, in Dublin and searching for a house, trying to buy a house, renting. renting uh, we know them. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, and there are attractive offers in the private sector, which the Irish Nurses Organisation have continuously uh, highlighted. Uh, but Sinead is right in terms of strikes. I mean, the general public hasn't any great truck with, with strikes anymore. I mean, strikes are kind of a byproduct of the uh, the 1980s uh, in many ways where we had, I mean, we talked about the minor strike in Britain, but there was a very large ESB strike uh, in Ireland. There have been strikes. Uh, but I think striking as a weapon in the modern economy has kind of lost a lot of its luster. So I, I think a strike wouldn't really serve the nurses uh, any good. But it's a, in, in, in many ways, it's a matter of the, uh, the minister's own making. And uh, he'll, need, uh, he'll need nifty fingers to resolve this one. Absolutely. Larry, I'm going to come to you on a different story. I want to talk Trump before we finish up. Um, outline succinctly for us, if you will. We're in partial <laughs> shutdown uh, and it looks like that's going to continue. They can't break that deadlock. Yeah, it's it's to me, it's a crazy strategy from Donald Trump. I just don't see where he gets the votes. Uh, at the end of the day, he can be obstinate. He can you know, fight and say all the things he likes, but he doesn't have the votes. And if you don't have the votes, you can't win the, the fight. Uh, and to me, uh, what I think is going to be telling is watching Republicans because they're going to get jittery because they know that American, the American people are going to blame the Republican Party for the shutdown. Uh, they're going to be watching those polls very carefully. Now, in the papers today, there's a good bit um, in the Sunday Business Post in particular. Mary McKeown is uh, writing about Trump. Could he miss out on a second term? What Anything stand out for you in the papers today on US stuff? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, of course, the, the conjecture about the, the potential Democratic nominee in 2020, I think, is the one that, that grabs me. Uh, Michael McDowell writing in the Business Post about uh, the, they need a new face, and I would tend to agree what with that. What names are in the mix, then? Well, he mentions Beto O'Rourke, uh, but there are a lot of other Democrats, pe- people who are not household names in Ireland just yet who could emerge. I and mean, we're talking a field about 20 to 25 candidates, uh, potentially. Uh, and if you ask me where there is space, if you have a field that big, let's remember 2016, there were 17 Republican candidates for president. 16 of them were kind of indistinguishable. They were traditional Republican conservatives. Donald Trump was something different. If you ask me in 20 and 20, 20 to 25 candidates in the mix, where is the space? The space, bizarrely, and this goes to something Gary said a minute ago, the space, bizarrely, might be in the middle because a lot of these Democrats are going to be running to the left. The potential main means of distinguishing oneself in that primary is somebody in the center. And indeed, in my view, and Michael McTill says this, and I think he's right, uh, in my view, uh, it is going to be somebody in the center who's going to the most palatable Democratic nominee. Because remember, the the peculiarities of the electoral college system mean that the road to the White House lead through the heartland, mm. through middle America. They don't lead the coast. The Democrats can pretty much take the coast for granted uh, at this stage. But it is going to be who can win back Pennsylvania, who can win back Ohio, who can win back Michigan. These are the real questions Democrats are going to need to answer. Uh, and I, I think we're at the beginning uh, of what's going to be a fascinating process to see how this winnows out. But again, I would agree with the analysis that it, it should be a fresh face. It should be a new face. Uh, that, I think, is the best way to take on Donald Trump. And, and, Gary, would you agree with that? Come in uh, on that. No, I, I would because... History tells us that's the case. When the Democratic Party goes left, as it did with someone like George McGovern in 1972, who ran against Richard Nixon, an incumbent, Walter Mondale in 1984, who ran against Ronald Reagan, uh, and when when they go left, they tend to lose spectacularly badly. I mean, Trump is one really strong thing going from which is a booming 
uh, economy. The recent figures just came out uh, show that. And there was always a great maxim, once the price of all gas is low at the petrol pumps, the Americans will stick with the uh, person who did it, which tends to be uh, the present. I tend to disagree with Michael McDowell. I mean, Beto O'Rourke couldn't win in Texas last uh, November. What's to suggest he could take uh, the country? Barack Obama had won an election, remember. Uh, but in 1992, the Democrats went to the centre with Bill Clinton. They moved away from the left. They went centrist. Uh, Clinton was practically an unknown governor of a small, inconsequential state for the most part. And, and look what happened there. So I tend to think someone like Elizabeth Warren, she might win the nomination, but I think she would not win the presidential election. But that election is there to be won, certainly. Sinead, come in on that. Mary McKeown's piece, she's saying that, you know, she poses the question, could Trump miss out in a second term? She says many see it as a fantasy, uh, but the possibility that the US president may not be on the ballot in 2020 mm. is an increasingly live one. You know, my colleagues here are obviously way more expert in this. I'm afraid I'm just a frightened uh, global citizen who just anybody mm. but Trump really is where I'm going with this uh, even if it's a Republican uh, and uh, you know and there's something that that kind of most people who would be broadly democratic in Ireland wouldn't, wouldn't usually wouldn't say normally say so I, it does it does frighten me greatly that the, the Democrats haven't really pulled their act together at this stage and that they need to start putting up contenders you know with, Larry, res- come in with, there. with respect to uh, impeachment, uh, Nancy Pelosi just sworn in as the new House, House Speaker. She's got a tricky job ahead of her because a lot of the new people who've been elected to Congress and indeed some of the veterans, uh, they really want to go for the jugular. They want to try. They want to start impeachment proceedings right now. Uh, if she accedes to their demands, that could backfire spectacularly because uh, unless there is something really there, unless the Mueller investigation unearths something, uh, I think the American people won't look too kindly. Uh, on an impeachment proceeding that will consume everything else unless there's something there. And indeed, we have precedent for that in 1998 when the Republicans tried to go after Bill Clinton on what most Americans viewed as a sexual transgression, nothing more, nothing less. Uh, It backfired on Republicans. So Nancy Pelosi is going to have a difficult task. So I suppose keeping some of these people at bay uh, and treading that moderate course Mm. uh, for her speakership. But again, she's a steely great inside player so there's nobody better suited to the role and not not notwithstanding mary McKeown's piece which which i read carefully but tend to disagree with um it's very difficult to challenge an incumbent president from within. We see what happened in 1980 with uh, when Ted Kennedy challenged uh, Jimmy Carter and the Democratic Party imploded in November uh, of that year. The Republicans are about winning. They want to win the presidential election. Trump is probably their best chance to do so because he could ruin the party if there was a bitter uh, internal fight. So I don't see uh, that uh, happening. Uh, the opportunity exists because, as Larry said, there are this American election, like the last three or four, will be fought over 10 states maximum. Uh, and the Democrats need to win back Michigan, Wisconsin, Ohio. That would get them over the line. Um, so that's what we're talking. Very small margins. You need a good candidate who can speak to middle America. And they don't have that yet. And that's a worry, certainly. Uh, Gary, them. before we finish up, a bit of talk in the Sunday Times and the Sunday Business Post today about a Fianna Fáil and SDLP merger. Do you agree with what Conor Brady or Tom McGurk are saying this morning? Yeah, and Owen Harris as well in the Sunday Indo has, has a piece about it. I mean, it's a bit of a mystery uh, because both parties are... Are, uh, struggling and I mean one might thought a merger might might help both but in fact it the analysis has tends to suggest it will it will sink both uh, Conor Brady's article is headline merger will lead SDLP into the political abyss well they're not far from it now they have no seats in the in Westminster and they're very unlikely to get any uh, seats back we saw Fianna Fáil have, well, a party Fianna Fáil, Eamon O'Keefe and Mark Daly had a rather solo run where they talked about choosing a Fianna Fáil candidate to run in the northern local elections 
I tend to think this might be some early season uh, January speculation because I'm not convinced there's anything in it for for Fianna Fáil in particular and Michal Martin has uh, he's a big challenge as it is the next general election is his, is his last mm. chance Fianna Fáil are not going to give him a four chance because uh, he's, he's fought two general elections already and I tend to suggest that where his uh, his political priorities will lie rather than in gazing westward or sorry northeastward north north to, north uh, to the uh, <laughs> Uh, to their fourth green field. Um, Sinead, let me finish. You want to mention a story. Uh, President <coughs> Higgins is on his holidays. You know this in the papers the today? Ma- the Mail on Sunday managed to get a full page out of the fact that um, President Higgins and his wife Spina have uh, had to apply to Cabinet for leave to go on holiday, uh, a winter break. Um, and uh, Cabinet approval was sought and it seems granted. And uh, the Mail put in quite a number of questions about the cost and the security detail and who was paying for it all and who would be with them and what he was going for and what he would what bucket and spade colour he would bring with them or whatever. Um, now, uh, and they got quite outraged about it. And unfortunately, the wind has been taken out of their own sails because it seems he flew Ryanair um, to Lanzarote. So despite government secrecy, La- Ryanair can't possibly reveal the location of the president, him for that trip. it would be national security <coughs> breach to name where he went. Of course, lots of people also, as it happens on the same uh, Ryanair flight, managed to get pictures of him and say, no, this, it's okay, he's with us. He's safe. Uh, we're going to land and probably get a hooter because they'll land on time. I wonder, was he split up under the get 14B and he got 3A or something like that. Um, of course, the, the Spaniards have had fun with this because they've used the fact that the president flew uh, Ryanair as a stick beat to beat their own Prime Minister, Pedro Sanchez, with because he's he not on only, a Ryanair flight. He f- also flew to Lanzarote. So there you go. Maybe they're having a, s- a secret summit <laughs> meeting in the, uh, in the sun uh, with some sangria. There, I've run out of alliteration now. Um, but he flew there on the Spanish government jet. Uh, so so well done uh, to, to Michael D uh, for going right now. <laughs> OK, we're going to leave it there. Hopefully he had a great time in Lanzarote. My thanks to our panel or our band this morning. Sinead, Larry and Gary uh, has a good ring to it. We're going with Sister Sledge for their backing track, uh, seeing as it's Cathy Sledge's birthday today. Larry Donnelly, law lecturer in NUIG. Gary Murphy, political scientist at DCU. And lead singer Sinead Ryan, personal <laughs> finance columnist with INN. Long, <laughs> we'll have lots more on the way in the next hour. On the record. On the record. On News Talk.